We are, as you know, working our way through the Gospel of John, and we have been for some time, and we will be for some time. We have worked our way all the way to John chapter 10. We are here talking about the Good Shepherd. I would like to read verses 1 down through 11, and just let it soak in a little bit as we read through, and then begin to make some comments about this whole passage. In John 10, verse 1, Jesus says, Most assuredly, or verily, verily, or truly, truly, the first opening phrase is designed by Jesus to get their attention. Everything Jesus has to say is important. But there are certain times and certain situations, as was the case here, where there's been an unraveling of events, incidences, circumstances, lives touched, certain reactions that cause him to gather it all up, as it were, and comment on it and speak to it. And that is what he's doing here. Most assuredly, verily, verily, listen closely, because I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger but will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. That is a critical comment on the part of John as he writes the gospel because everything that he just said was totally familiar to them. So when he says Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them, it's a comment on the blindness of the Pharisees that are there. And we're going to talk about that. In verse 7, then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And he goes on into the chapter. This is such a tremendous passage. And please allow me to take a running leap at it. Familiarity with this setting here is critical to our understanding. If you think about it, we can often very quickly grasp, with a little familiarity, we can often quickly grasp a few basic concepts or picture something very quickly and get into a discussion. If we mention certain places, for example, in the world that we're fairly familiar with, it keys up instantly a specific picture. You understand what I mean by that? And then it, it keys up some basic things. For example, if I say to you, Hawaii, does that instantly bring up something in your mind? Yes. It brings up sun. It brings up warmth. If you've been there, it brings up the warmth and yet the refreshing trade winds. It brings up sand and 
If you surf, it definitely brings up surf because it's the best surf in the world. If you're into tanning, it brings up all of that. If you're into eating, it brings up restaurants. If you're into fishing, it brings up fishing. But if I say Hawaii, it, it keys up something very quickly and very clear. If I say to you Alaska, it means something, doesn't it? Cold, snow, frontier, in terms of America, maybe one of the last frontier, bears. It keys up something. With a little familiarity, there can come a quick picture in the mind and you can really move forward. When we come to this passage, our problem in coming to John 10 is a lack of familiarity. That's the problem. It is a problem I think we all share. And to think anything other than that would be only for those that have worked with sheep. And most of us have not. See, the problem we have is a lack of familiarity with the whole world of shepherds and sheep in general. Frankly, for most of us, other than maybe some Bible studies we've been in on, for most of us, the extent of our knowledge of sheep is lamb at a restaurant. That's about our extent of knowledge of sheep. We have a problem of the whole world of shepherds and sheep of a lack of familiarity. I think we especially have a problem of a lack of familiarity with the whole world of sheep and shepherds at the time of Christ. And we come to John 10 and, and what we end up with, I think, often is like many parts of the Bible. We may be familiar with the words and we may be familiar with a little tiny thimbleful of shallow understanding and thus almost no real application from a passage that we think we know. But we have a problem, I think, just understanding what's really going on with the whole world of shepherds and sheep at the time of Christ. I think we have a problem with a familiarity with the main purpose of sheep at the time of Christ. And here's where you begin to get into an understanding of what's going on. Some of the sheep at the time of Jesus Christ were raised for sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. But very few of those sheep ever made it there because the, they had to be without blemish. They had to be the special ones in the flock. Those sheep were raised for their flesh in the sense of sacrifice. But other than that, sheep at the time of Christ and the shepherd and the relationship was something that went on and on. To help you in your understanding of that is to say that the sheep were raised for their wool and not for their flesh. Now, if you travel through England on a train, what you'll see is a lot of open country at certain points and a lot of sheep. There's a lot of sheep that are raised there. Many of them are raised simply so you can go to a restaurant, sit down and eat lamb. They're raised for their flesh right now to this day. But in Israel at the time of Christ and to this day, there are many sheep raised, but mostly for their wool. Thus, you begin to understand that the difference is important because in raising sheep for their flesh or their wool, the difference is important because it is a major difference in the nature of the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep and the duration of the relationship. If you raise a lamb for its flesh, it's there a little while and it's gone. If you raise a lamb for its wool, it can go on for decades that you have this relationship. You come to know everything about that lamb. And, and it grows into a sheep. And you, you then name them, usually by some identifying mark. It's like having a dog that's black, you name him Blackie. You have a, a sheep and he's got two white feet, so you name him Two Socks or something. There's this familiarity that goes on. 
And in the long-term relationship a shepherd had with the sheep in those days, there was a knowledge of the voice. All of these issues are critical. There is an entire world of provision, an entire world of care, an entire world of relationship that the average person at the time of Jesus had a working knowledge of, I mean mentally, so that it was a society filled with shepherds and sheep. This passage leans heavily on that knowledge. Jesus in his teaching, the common people heard him gladly, which is a great statement about his teaching. And the reason the common people heard him gladly is because he chose simple things they could relate to. A sower went forth to sow. He's talking to an agricultural society. He's not talking to a, a group of computer nerds that sit in an office staring into a monitor all day long. A sower went forth to sow. Yeah, man, I can lock in on that. No, he's talking to people that farm. It's an agricultural society. He chooses things they can relate to. Day laborers and so on. All of his analogies. He chooses this whole thing because they understood so much about it. And that's why when you read that the Pharisees could not understand what he's saying, to come to grips with that is to come to grips with some very enlightening truth about salvation and darkness and willful rejection of God and salvation. So when you effectively close the language gaps, the history gaps, the culture gaps, the geography gaps in this passage... It becomes very clear, and it becomes very powerful, and its effect becomes very lasting, but it does require some work, and that's why we call it Bible study. Bible study. And that is what we're doing right now. I think my comments just on this are as important as going through the verses, because it helps us understand the whole process of studying the Bible. Matthew Henry was very helpful for me here in getting an overview of this passage. He said... Here is a parable or a similitude. And in actuality, it is a similitude more than a parable. A parable is a, a theoretic reality. It's sort of a story that's not really true. Some people went out to work in the vineyard, let's say. You know, and a story is made up that's not really true. A similitude is, is different than that. This isn't really a parable. This is Jesus working allegorically off the realities of their society to teach truth. And there is a difference. Matthew Henry said, Here is a similitude taken from the customs of the East in the management of sheep. And here's what you find in the passage. Men as creatures, depending on their creator, are called the sheep of his pasture. He goes on to say that the church of God in the world is as a sheepfold, exposed to deceivers and persecutors. The great shepherd of the sheep knows all that are his, guards them by his providence, guides them by his spirit and word, and goes before them as eastern shepherds went before their sheep, to set them in the way of his steps. Here in the passage, there's great teaching about ministers, pastors, and how they must serve the sheep and their spiritual concerns. Here is the Spirit of Christ who sets before humankind an open door to salvation. Here are the sheep of Christ that observe their shepherd and are cautious and shy about strangers who would draw them from faith and false doctrines about him. End quote. It's great understanding of the overview of the passage. The last part where he says, Here are the sheep observing their shepherd, and they are cautious, and they are shy from strangers. That statement is critical, because the strangers are the false teachers. They are the false shepherds. They are, in fact, the scribes and the Pharisees. 
They are in fact the very people that are in this group right now listening. Stop and think about who is in this crowd. In this crowd, you have those that only a very brief time before, I mean, you go chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, you're just talking about a very brief span of time. And so you have these things being spoken immediately following the rejection of Jesus Christ and a murder attempt on his life. I mean, within a very short time. Jesus is speaking about shepherd and sheep to those that had witnessed the healing of a, a man born blind, something that had never been done. People had seen something that had never been done in the history of the world to open the eyes of one born blind. Some of them are in the crowd. In the crowd you have the Pharisees who actually witnessed the healing of the blind man, accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath by doing a healing, and then on the flip side, denied the healing happened. Talk about blindness. That's insanity. It's beyond blindness. But that's the nature of the thinking of a heart that's bound in darkness and rejects the light of God. These people are in the crowd. Jesus is speaking to a mixed group. He has here devout disciples, some of whom will, will go to their death and their testimony for him when he's gone. He has in the group curious seekers who want to know, what is a relationship with God all about? Well, it's tender. It's intimate. It's like a shepherd who cares for his sheep for years and years and years. And you have curious seekers in the group who could go either way. And you have those false shepherds that really want to take those people, all of them, in the wrong direction and turn them against Christ and turn them on the broad road that leads to destruction, all the while convincing them that they're on the road that leads to eternal life, really to snatch their souls and damn them for their own glory and gain, which at that point would have been money, power, and prestige. So all of this is going on here. As you come to this, and frankly, John is very hard to outline because of the way he just tells these accounts. You have here the shepherd, the good shepherd, and he's presented as the Messiah, first of all, and that's the first section that runs from verse 1 down to verse 5. And then you have Jesus is the door. We're going to look at that next time. And Jesus is the good shepherd. Now here, Jesus is the Messiah. We talked about this last time. I just want to touch on it again. When you come to the beginning of this passage and you look at verses 1 through 5 and you're talking about the sheepfold here this is the type of sheepfold in a village or a town where the shepherds would bring their flocks in from out in the countryside and they'd be tired they'd need to be refreshed so that here was like a communal place they could bring all their flocks it was a sealed place with a door and there was a porter who guarded the door and then the shepherds could go rest when they were rested and took care of their needs they would then come and get their flocks and head on out again. So they would go, they'd have to deal with the porter, they'd have to get him to open the door, and then they would have to call their sheep. And the only sheep that would come out would be the ones that recognized that shepherd's voice. They have done studies on uh, these shepherds of old and found that some of them actually developed what was sort of like a, a clucking sound, something from deep in the throat with a finely pitched whine added into it. It was just a certain sound they would make and their sheep would recognize it instantly and literally come running and hopping to them while all the other sheep would just pay absolutely no attention whatsoever. So that is, that's the picture here. 
That's a type of sheepfold, and it's important to realize that because it teaches a specific thing, and the specific thing is that Jesus came to the fold of Israel. And that's the picture here. This fold, in verses 1 through 5, is Israel. Jesus comes to Israel to lead out those among Israel that would follow him as the Messiah. And that's why I've said that the first thing we see here is Jesus as the Messiah, coming to his own. A few followed him out, and many did not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So he came to the fold of Israel. And in coming to the fold, we see how he knows his sheep and how he calls them. And then we come to the point here where we are told that he leads them out. This is where I want to focus our few remaining minutes. If you look at John 10, 4, and 5, it says, And when he brings out his own sheep, this is out of that common village fold, out through the door, past the porter, and they're following his voice. He goes before them. I'm resisting the temptation to just stop right there. There's, there's a, a whole message right there. He goes before them. We'll touch on it later. He goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet, now notice this, they will by no means follow a stranger, but that doesn't mean there's no reaction to the stranger. They will flee from him. That is a reaction. For they do not know the voice of strangers. What I see here is what we could call a God-given instinct to those that know His voice. Those that become the sheep of the Good Shepherd are given an instinct inside. It's something that comes from the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's really the activity of the Holy Spirit. I think it really even sweeps in that verse in Romans that's so often misinterpreted and attached to tongues and really has nothing to do with tongues. You know the verse I'm talking about? where it says that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for you with groaning that cannot be uttered. That is so often used to explain what the gift of tongues is all about. The problem is people ignore the fact that it says cannot be uttered. So it doesn't come out of the mouth. It is the work of the Holy Spirit interceding deep within us. I think that this God-given instinct is directly reflective of that. That often we're in the middle of a situation and we don't even know what to do. We don't have the criteria at times even to properly judge in our knowledge bank up here. And so the Spirit intercedes and there's this instinctive thing that happens inside that helps us to feel the difference between good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. And I think you begin to see what I'm talking about. You see, Jesus' sheep follow Him because of this God-given instinct to do so. Now, this statement, when you read it, you have to see it as a statement against the blind Pharisees. Look at verse 6. Jesus used this illustration, but they, the Pharisees, did not understand the things which he spoke to them. This is to say they were completely void of this God-given instinct. This is something only a a child of God has. It's critical here in chapter 10 to see the context. Just go back to chapter 9. Look at the end of chapter 9. He healed the blind man. He came into great conflict with the Pharisees about it. And by the end of chapter 9, he just comes out and he basically, we spent a lot of time explaining it, but he basically just said, you're the blind leading the blind. In verse 39, he said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, like the blind man. He's a picture. Born blind, 
has never seen in his life, but he sees now. Every man is born blind. Every man is born in darkness. But to come to Christ and to be touched by Him, to be born again, is to see for the first time in your life. I have come to give that kind of sight, really is His point, spiritual sight. And then some of the Pharisees who were with Him, verse 40, and heard these words, said to Him, facetiously, are we blind also? I mean, the implication was direct and blunt. He probably looked at them as He said it. Their response was, are we blind also? And the point that Jesus is making is, that is the whole point. You are totally blind to everything that God is is doing right now to fulfill all of the volume of the book in which it was written of the Messiah. You're completely blind. Then he said, because you're blind and because you want to stay that way, you will remain in your sins. And they died in their sins, those Pharisees that rejected him. This sheep-shepherd allegory teaching here is a direct shot at these Pharisees to confirm to them their blindness. Because here's what he does. He takes what is familiar to everybody and he says the most familiar things and applies it to himself and they don't have a clue of what he's trying to say. And the point is, with John's footnote, here's the proof of how blind they really were. That using what everybody understood and just applying it simply to himself, they totally missed the point. But you see, the blind man newly saved didn't miss the point. The disciples didn't miss the point. Anyone in the crowd that had this God-given instinct didn't miss the point. And why do I bring this up and why belabor it? Because I think it's critical. Here in this group are sheep, and they are listening to Jesus Christ, and they're drawing great comfort. You can imagine the blind man. He felt so alone his whole life. He has to go find his parents when he is healed. Why didn't they take care of him? He was their son and he was born blind, but he was a beggar. Why didn't they take care of him? Talk about a lonely life. Suddenly he's, he can see, and he, he can see the expression on the face of Jesus, and he's talking about coming into the fold and calling his sheep, and he's saying, yeah, that's what I did. I answered the voice. And, and now I'm, I'm experiencing his care. He's healed me. And it's just this comfort flooding his soul. In the meantime, there's an opposite reaction in the Pharisees. As opposite a reaction as you could possibly have as a human being. Look at verse 6. Let's track this a little bit. In verse 6, Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Now jump down to verse 19 and see their reaction. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. Here's their reaction. Many of them said, he has a demon and he's mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these aren't the words of one who has a demon. And by the way, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Being a disciple of Jesus at that point must have been the most exciting thing in all of life. It's kind of like a new day dawns. Let's go for a walk, guys. Oh, man, I can't wait to see what's going to happen today. And here they are. They're watching all this. You know what I see here is instruction for us. You have to see here the blindness of these Pharisees because, and their response, because if you see it, you will then see why some of your friends have the response to preaching that they do. Why some of your relatives have the response to the preaching of the word that they do. Why some of your loved ones? See, why is it that you can sit 
in a, in a given message. And it's almost like God finished listening in your home all week, took notes on everything, rode in the car with you with your friends, rode in the car with you on the way to church, listened to your conversation, and now He's answering you. Why is it that you can sit in a sermon and feel like that and comfort floods your soul, conviction shining light to bring freedom in the future, and, and you're just, oh God, I love you. And the person next to you is getting madder and madder and madder and madder. Sometimes they get up and they go. They just walk out. It's hard on you, isn't it? You bring a friend or a loved one to church and rah, you know. You can't even go eat afterwards. Forget it, I've lost my appetite. And you've lost your relationship with me, you Jesus freak. You know, you wonder why. And it's frightening at Christmas time, you know, and New Year's. Oh, we're going to have to see them. We haven't seen them since they walked out, you know. Well, you, you look at this and you understand. That's what's going on in this crowd. One great saint of old said, The blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clarity of the gospel. Let me say that again. The blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clarity of the gospel. The sun is no less bright because blind men do not perceive its light. That's what we have here. What Jesus is saying is so clear. Then you read, but they didn't understand. Why? Because they were blind to it. Why? Because he said, you're blind because you love the darkness rather than the light. Now, listen very closely. Because this may answer some of your frustration. As Jesus is standing here with these learned men, it isn't that they need more knowledge. It's not like, oh, give the Pharisees a break, man. I mean, by the end of it all, they just need to know more about him, and they'll follow him. No, they'll kill him. It isn't they need more knowledge. They don't need a greater knowledge of God and Christ. What they need is a greater humility and openness to Christ. They need a willingness to turn from their sins to God and repent of their evil and come to God in brokenness and humility. That's the problem. And it's so critical to see that because sometimes when we see this opposite reaction of people that we care about so much to the preaching of the Word, and they may even be religious. Listen, these people were as religious as you will ever find. You will never find ever throughout any part of history of the human race a more religious group of people than are in this crowd against Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, if you want to talk about religion and adherence to it. So they may be religious. They may go to the church, whatever. They may say their prayers, quote. But to have this opposite reaction of, that you have. Augustine said it, the early church father, he said, it is no advantage to be near the light if the eyes are closed. Thomas Fuller said, a blind man will not thank you for a looking glass. And they are not thanking Jesus here. They are angry. They wanted to kill him only a short time ago. By the time we get to the end of this chapter, they're trying to kill him again. Matthew Henry said, Those that love darkness rather than light shall have their doom accordingly. Think about that. See, that's the part that isn't thought about. To love darkness rather than light is to remain willfully blind, to then willfully reject Christ, even if you say, No, I, I, I'm not his enemy, I just don't want him. But to love the darkness rather than light is to die and have your doom accordingly. And that's the picture here. So when you see your friends respond with the opposite response to you, 
to the same message where you were warmed and comforted, challenged, maybe whatever, convicted to turn from sin and, and close in on the warmth of Christ again, understand that that's because of the condition of the heart of the individual. Jesus never changes. Our great God who is love never changes. He was loved yesterday and he's loved today. He was a shepherd yesterday who called you by name and he is so today. And in a sense, if you can stand back as a Christian, as a sheep and look at this, there is a sense of comfort here if you see it. The great Puritan Thomas Watson said, a blind eye is worse than a lame foot. I want to say to you today that if, if you feel lame, if you feel weak as a sheep, thank God that that's all you feel. And thank God that you do feel. Because to be dead and blind spiritually is far worse. If you've come in here today and, and even at this moment you haven't heard a, any of the message because you can only think about your sin this week. You can only think about that thing you did. I'll say it again. A lame foot is better than a blind eye. Thank God you're not dead anymore. Thank God you're alive now. Thank God you can feel it now. Thank God you care now. Because before you were dead in trespasses and sins and you didn't care. And if you don't care, today you are dead. Sorry, but you're a goat. Not a sheep. And the Bible says in the end, Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the sheep will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And every bit of that good and every bit of that faithful will be attributed to the work of His Holy Spirit within us. In other words, all of grace to the very end and on for eternity. And then He will say to the goats, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And so you realize on both sides, whatever good, whatever faithful came from Him and His grace and the work of His Spirit by grace and enter into the joy of the Lord so that the issue of the sin on both sides Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. The only difference between the two in the end is Him. That's the difference. We're still human. We're still human, but we have Christ. See, there was a God-given instinct to those who knew His voice. It's a statement against the blind Pharisees. And I think it was the secret, on the other hand, of the man who was healed of his blindness. Because how could he withstand such an onslaught? This poor guy... Blind his whole life a beggar, healed by Jesus, goes to testify. The Pharisees unsynagogue him. In doing so, they unsocialize him. He's kicked out of society, effectively. This poor guy, how could he withstand this? But he never backs down. What's the secret? That he knew so much, he didn't know anything. They said, tell us about this guy. He said, I don't know. Why? You want to know him too? I mean, that's about as much as he knew. All I know is he opened my eyes. How did he withstand that instinct inside, that God-given instinct? And that God-given instinct is given to born-again Christians. And it's almost like the people around us that are not really converted see this total foolishness, but it's not foolishness to us. He says, they won't follow a stranger, they will flee from him. Beware of not taking that God-given instinct seriously and beware of neglecting it. Because it's critical to your life. I talked to so many people in England and that told me we're so thankful God led us to the sound teaching of the word. 
because we were in this place and we just felt it was wrong. We were over here and we felt it was wrong. We were here and we just didn't feel right, though the service itself was okay. There was something wrong in the teaching. And the bottom line of all of it is they generally say something like this, I've learned more in two months here than I learned in ten years before. You know, these kind of comments. Well, what led them to that place? What told them there's something wrong here and there's something wrong here and there's something wrong when they didn't even have a lot of knowledge to have the criteria to judge? It said God-given instinct. Beware of neglecting it. Beware of making light of it. It is one of the greatest realities of your life as a born-again Christian. It's also one of the greatest proofs that you're really born again. The idea that you care. The idea that you sense it. And let God cultivate it in your life. In 1 John 2.20, John writes, he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Another rendering of it gives. Here's the bottom line. We are surrounded by Pharisees in the church today. We are surrounded by false shepherds. One of the most popular movements of our recent history in the church of the last decade has been the user-friendly church movement. It's a movement. It is a movement designed to get the Bible out of the pulpit, and that is what the design is. And it is led, by and large, by hirelings. They are not there for the glory of Christ. They are not there for the conversion of the people. They are not there for the good of their souls. They are not there for the feeding of the flock. They are there to build an empire for themselves. They are false shepherds. They're on the television, they're on the radio, they're in the bookstores and these quasi-pseudo-Christian bookstores that are more like the Bazaar of Annas, the swap meet of Annas and Caiaphas in the Bible, at the front of the temple in the court of the Gentiles, that they should be called trinkets are us, often will promote one of the chief wolves in the body of Christ on their best-seller counter, simply because they're in it for the money too. It's just an outlet, factory outlet for wolves. Beware and follow the good shepherd. Have your own relationship with him. He calls you by name. He knows you. Someone may sit in a sermon and have an opposite reaction to you. That is their business between them and God. Your business is to know him. If you know him, you will follow him. You will have a reaction to false shepherds and you will follow the true shepherd. And in following him in the way of life, you will have peace and you will have fruitfulness and you will be healthy. And you know something? One thing about healthy sheep, they multiply. And thus, it becomes a natural process of sharing of this care and love that's been bestowed on you by your good shepherd. That kind of witnessing is really quite easy and it's really quite natural when you know him. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll continue our study next time. Lord, we bless and we praise your holy name this day. How great it is, Lord Jesus, to be under your care. How we thank you and praise you for your concern and your love for us. Lord, I pray for each sheep here that you would lead them in the paths of your righteousness. For each one of us, Lord, that we could hear your voice clearly. Lord, for those that are feeling 
lame, wounded, or weak, that you would strengthen them, breathe fresh strength into their souls even now. That, God, you would cultivate within us that work of your Spirit that would discern between right and wrong. And even when we don't have the full knowledge to back up what we're feeling, to follow you, to love you, to fear God rather than a man, and to be free. We will give you all the glory. Lord, unite us. Take your kingdom forward to hold the banner high of Christ, to share the love of Jesus and do it gladly, to be led by you and guided by you and blessed by you. And we will give you all the glory, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.